Hi, I'm Diana. And I'm Susanna. And you're listening to Global Caveat, the podcast where we demystify global health. On today's episode, we'll give a brief history of global health and how you can get into global public health. We'll also discuss our own journeys in becoming global health researchers. start things a little bit differently. Rather than just going straight into it and talking about how to get into the work, let's give an example of a disease to paint a picture of global health. Okay, so let's see if our listeners can guess what this disease is, and I'll be giving a little example. Um, So you wake up feeling fine, and then soon after you start to feel fever and chills, then you start feeling very weak, and then time goes on, and soon you start having tummy pain, maybe even diarrhea, and you're throwing up, and then hours pass, you're bleeding from your mouth, your nose, out your butthole, and maybe even under your skin, and then you go into shock, and then you die. And this is all within a 24-hour period, and as after you die, your skin turns black on your fingers, toes, and nose. So what do you think this disease is? <laughs> yeah, let's give a little bit of time, so uh, like... Okay, so it's the Black Plague. Let us know if you got it right. Otherwise known as the bubonic plague as well. Yeah, so the Black Plague is an infection from the bacteria Yersinia pestis, and it is transported via fleas, which tend to be on rats. And the reason that I say that it tends to be on rats is because one of the, well, not one of the, the Black Plague happened in the 1300s during the trade routes of the Silk Road, right? So Yersinia pestis traveled throughout the entire trade route from Asia into the Black Sea, into the Mediterranean, and then from there it went to Italy and traveled all the way up north through France and then to Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. So this is totally a side tangent. Um, when I was living in Florence, I got to go visit and see this place where it was this group of people that worked with helping to alleviate some of the mm-hmm. problems with the plague, right? So it was called the Confraternita della Misericordia di Firenze. I'm sorry to all of my Italians out there and to all the Italians that I had to live with <laughs> that had to deal with me speaking like this. So basically, it's a confraternity, so a brotherhood of these men that would go and they would help people around the city, especially during the Black Plague. So they would go providing aid and help to all of these people in water and try to like prevent them from being sick. Because as Susanna mentioned, it has a 100% death rate if you are not treated and you die within 24 hours. You die pretty fast. <laughs> they also did things like transport patients to the hospitals and to funeral services. They did other relief work like helping free prisoners from their debts, help provide subsidies to sick people, help with burials, etc. So they did all these great things and they, they particularly helped a lot during the Black Plague. And actually, I got to see these really great basket backpack things. They were like, think of a massive hamper that you might put like hooks on and they would hook that onto their back and like toss people into the baskets and like run to the nearest hospital. Anyway, getting back to the point, the Black Plague was a massive disease that was able to travel from one country all the way to another country through the water, right? And it killed an estimated amount of 30 to 60% of Europe's total population. I know that is a wide percentage of population, but it's hard to keep track of how many people there are. Um, But it took roughly 100 million lives. So that's a lot of people, right? But yeah, so what does this have to do with anything? 
Think of it this way, the way that I was mentioning how I was able to travel through all of those different places, this happens to be one of the earliest examples. Um, while we weren't really using the terms of global health or public health, this is one of those examples of right. that actually taking place because all of these different people from all these different backgrounds are working together to try to figure out how to stop the disease from spreading and how to help heal them, right? And prevent people from dying. So it was stopping disease spread and helping people get better from this sickness. Yeah, because definitely I don't think the terms public health or global health definitely did not exist during that time. Yeah, like you said, the concept is there. So having said that, Suzanne and I get questions about what's up with global health all the time. I know that's a super smooth transition, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, we get questions about what's global health? How did we get into it? What's the difference between MPH and a PhD? How do you, the people that are asking us, get into public health? Um, so I think that we should start with just giving a little bit of a more concrete definition of what global health is. And I'm going to defer to Susanna on that because she teaches a course on global health. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that awesome introduction. <laughs> um, I'm glad we're doing this episode because like Diana said, you know, we have been getting a lot of questions individually and just together as well from various types of people about what global health is, um, how to get into it. So if we want to talk about what global health is, I do teach an intro to global health course at the school that I'm at. And um, the best way that I describe it is um, it has its roots in a very paternalistic, I guess, roots. Like, it, let me rephrase that. Global health, global health has paternalistic roots in that it really started because more wealthy nations, such as European nations or like the United States, um, they saw these other countries or communities who were less advantaged or were suffering from diseases um, and they were like, oh, maybe we can go in and help them and provide aid. And if you have heard the term international health, that's really where this idea comes from. And it was really unilateral, meaning it was from country A going to country B being like, I'm going to help you. Global health, I think, is more recent. Um, this concept that health isn't really bound by geographic or national borders anymore. There are shared characteristics that determine why or why we aren't healthy. And so the global health work that Diana and I do, we, we do have this international focus but it's in under the framework that we recognize that Diana could be doing work on Ukraine and I could be doing work in, I, I don't know, like Turkey. But we may have some intersecting um, concepts or health determinants that we can um, put together and be like, oh, well, this isn't unique just to Ukraine or this isn't unique just to Turkey. We could probably see this in other areas of the world and apply it to help the population become healthier. So um, there are many different definitions of global health if you search on Google that you can find, but I think there is this urgency to establish a standard definition just because this field is continuing to evolve more and more. And it's looking, I think, a little different from when it initially started. Yeah, definitely. I think that it's definitely changing a lot because it does have paternalistic roots, like you said, 
but it's also becoming much more collaborative as a field, um, working with multiple disciplines and with people on the ground because we are recognizing more and more that we cannot possibly know more about what's happening on the ground than the people that are actually living it. And all we can really do in this work in terms of like a global aspect is to help connect some of these dots and loose ends, right? Mm -hmm. like, that's assuming that we are in these types of institutes or organizations that give us those resources, the network, the ability to help make these kinds of connections. It's all really partnerships. Yeah, and I love that you said partnerships because global health is not an individual task. Like in global health, you will rarely see one person doing all the work, one person doing I mean, one person may take all the credit, which is common. <laughs> yes, but it's that's so unrealistic because whatever work that you do, it it's collaborative on so many fronts. And I think this is why I really enjoy doing even this podcast because we're bringing on so many different people with different backgrounds. Like our last episode was with Joey and she's an anthropologist. And... As global health practitioners, we're going to intersect with anthropologists in one way or another. Um, and at and oh, sorry, and on the other end, like we're going to interact with biologists or you know chemists or you know. So we, it's just such a like you said, this field is so interdisciplinary, um, and like collaboration, I think, is at its core for sure. So um, now we could address broadly to all the people that have been reaching out, you know, sliding into our DMs and being like, hey, can you can you give us some advice about how to get into public health? Um, and we do have some things that we'd like to share. And I think, Diana, you should start off with just some main things that you think people should know about getting into public health. Okay, so this is a question I get quite frequently, so I'm going to make this my biggest point. What is the difference between an MPH and a PhD, and is it even worth it to pursue an MPH? First of all, let's put a definition to what an MPH is. An MPH is a master's in public health, and it is definitely worth it, but do I think it's more worth it than a PhD? Maybe, maybe not. The answer varies depending on what you are looking to do. A lot of people see an MPH next to the alphabet soup next to someone's name. So maybe they see it after things like MD, PhD, EDD, CHES, MA, DPT, NP, PA. I can go on and on. But you don't need to have those letters to have an MPH and to have your MPH be effective, right? A lot of those people come back to get an MPH later on. Um, some of those people get an MPH first and then move on to those other degrees. But an MPH can be a terminal degree if you want it to be one. It depends on what you want to do with the work. And an MPH is not an inferior degree. Like you can do quite a lot with this. You don't necessarily have to have a doctorate. You can also get into global and public health from an MSW, which is social work, or an MPA, which is public administration, or really like you can probably come from, well, not probably, you can definitely come from a myriad of other fields and just all sorts of different backgrounds, right? And for example, one of my mentors came from a history background. They did their bachelor's in history and then went off and did an MBA and was working in management and ended up getting into public health and was motivated into the work because of health access. 
wanted their employees to be able to participate in team sports and business, like the company sports, um, and to be part of the softball team, but none of the employees wanted to participate because they didn't want to get injured because they had no health insurance, they didn't have access to health insurance. So uh, my mentor got really frustrated and fed up with the fact he's like, wow, all of these people really should have a, um, all these people really should have the access to healthcare. This isn't fair that like, this isn't right. So he ended up going off and getting an MPH and then eventually a DRPH. So a passion was sparked and then he just like went full steam ahead and went straight into it because it was so like so strong of a reaction that he felt so like he felt that he needed to go do that work. That's awesome. Yeah. And to our listeners, a DRPH is a doctoral degree in public health. It's different from PhD because it's um, it's more of a professional degree. And so it's post-professional, meaning a lot of people who go into getting a DRPH, they've been working for at least three to five years in the field and they go back to get this degree um, just for more experience um, and they get that DRPH after their name. So that is also an option if you want to go work in the field and then you decide you want to go back and get a professional degree, a DRPH is an option. Also, you can be any age and want to go back to school. I'm just throwing that out there. I think age and wanting to start a new field can be really intimidating. Like most of my classmates are younger than me. I'd say the average is quite young, definitely older than the average. Um, We don't need to talk about how old I am. Forever 25. (laughs) But that doesn't really mean older people aren't there, right? So I've made friends with a lot of people that are closer to my age or older than me. And we have a healthy mix of people from varying backgrounds. Like we have a lot of professionals coming from other countries or coming into second careers. Some people with medical degrees from other fields, they just wanted to switch fields. Um, And yeah, they've just come back to school and I think that it's amazing and they're doing all this work because they just found it at a different time of their life, right? Yeah, that's interesting. In my program, I'm in the younger age bracket. And in my own cohort, we have, I have five people in my cohort and I mean the age, difference between the youngest and the oldest is pretty large actually and I have classmates and friends who are well into their 40s some have children and yeah they're just coming back and they're doing they're getting this degree and it's honestly really amazing to see that yeah I don't know how people with full-on families go back to school y'all amaze me um I'm over here like oh my god did I remember to water my plants (laughs) so true Okay, so at the graduate level, whether we're talking about master's or doctoral level, you choose a specific track. So you may be interested in public health, um, but for me, my specific focus or track is global health. So if I, when, not if, if I, oh my god, I did it again. When I graduate (laughs) with my PhD, my diploma will say doctor philosophy in public health but my actual track or field is global health. Now, Diana, I think you have a really interesting setup because you're epidemiology. Yeah, so I'm in epidemiology and I just happen to be focused on global health. A common concentration for epidemiology tends to be like infectious disease or drug use, but I happen to be focusing on global health and human rights. So that's just what I'm doing. Mine will end up saying epidemiology. I'm also doing an advanced certificate in health and human rights. So I'll have both of those when I'm done. Yeah. 
So, I mean, there's so many different fields now. Health promotion being one of them. Maternal and child health is pretty popular. Mental health, I unfortunately, there aren't a lot of institutions that specifically have a department dedicated to mental health. It's growing, though. Yeah, so if you're interested in that, that is definitely a field I see growing a lot in the next however many years. Um, global health is also one of those fields. And just to be clear, let's say you're interested in something like HIV AIDS, you could do HIV AIDS in any one of those fields. But what these fields offer is just there's different methods or different ways of assessing and observing and actually understanding the disease. So for example, in maternal and child health, how you look at HIV AIDS is going to look pretty different from health promotion and health behavior. And how you figure out like what track you fit, I think honestly that just comes from you doing your own research and kind of getting putting yourself out there, taking classes, volunteering, interning, job shadowing, talking to people, and just kind of sifting out what you're more drawn to. Yeah, and then also with all of these different fields, I just want to say, as Susanna mentioned earlier, there's not a whole lot of resources out there for mental health institutes, but... Having said that, many places and schools are very specific with their specialties. So if you're over here and you're like, wow, I'm so jazzed to work on opioid research, you should look into schools that focus on opioid research because you're going to get the best education that is catered to what you want to work on by going to that place, right? So some schools are focused on health policy, some are focused on things like tobacco, some work with marginalized populations, some are infectious disease, I could go on and on. But the thing is that like those schools have professors and researchers that are working really hard on advancing those specific fields and they're typically known for those things. And those schools will have better funding for that type of research. And all of these schools are very transparent about all of this and what their particular focuses are. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. I think that ties directly into what we're going to talk about next, which is about how to get into graduate school. Um, and if you're looking at applying and considering, I always tell people, honestly, like 80% of it is the research on the schools that you want to go to and the faculty. And like you just said, that is one of the main things that you want to look for is, sure, Columbia may have a really great name and like a name brand reputation. Johns Hopkins, obviously, when it comes to health, has such a great name brand. And if you want to go there, that's amazing. But also consider, okay, what are your personal interests? Like Diana said, you know, if if you're really interested, like let's say, in HIV AIDS, there are schools out there where most of the faculty are like experts in it and the school has a lot of funding for it and they are known for doing that research. And then there are other schools, maybe all their focus is on tobacco. And if you can't really find an advisor or professor who can really foster your interest in HIV AIDS, then maybe that institution isn't right for you, despite it being a great institution. So yeah, definitely do your research. Um, I definitely ran into that because I had, I started off with a huge list of schools that I was interested in. And I had to cut a lot of them because after researching what they're known for and what their faculty, like their expertises are in, I realized, oh, well, there's not a lot of people doing like refugee mental health work, human rights work, <laughs> which actually cut my list more than half. So um, so that, that was a little unfortunate for me. But also, I guess it's kind of nice because it just, I mean, it narrows it down to like, I don't know, 10 schools. <laughs> 
Not even. <laughs> Not even. That's that's an overstatement. It's like ambition, um, right? Ten was like stretching stretching my interests a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But definitely, yeah, research your schools. And reach out to the faculty. Many of them love talking to prospective students. I mean, just there's no better way to say it. We're a field of a bunch of nerds, as I feel like many scientific fields are. And we get really excited to talk about what we're working on. Like, I get so stoked when anyone wants to talk to me about what I'm working on. I will just go on and on. Um, But yeah, if you reach out to someone and they're excited to talk to you, take that as a sign. Like, if you get into a program and that program is where that professor is, but you don't end up getting to work directly with that professor, you can still have that network and have that connection with them. And even if you don't get into a school where you've made that connection, you still have that person as someone you can talk to which is a really big thing because creating that type of network and those connections can really help you in doing what you want to do, like focusing on what you want to research and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I would say people love talking about themselves. Professors love talking about their work. I mean, just imagine these people are, <laughs> these people are people that have been doing research on something that they love and that they're interested in for however many years. And so any opportunity to talk about it is awesome you're I mean in a way you're stroking their ego too so so I mean if you're gonna reach out to professors that you're interested in read some of their work read some of their papers and then when you email them just be like introduce yourself and then just be like you know I, I read this paper and it was really interesting don't lie like if it wasn't interesting they're gonna know because <laughs> they really want to talk about it <laughs> Um, and just be like, I'm really interested in this. And like, this is the kind of work that I would really like to do if I were to get into PhD. Do you mind if, you know, we can talk more about X, Y, and Z? And more often than not, professors are willing to talk about, you know, their research, but also prospective students. Email people early before you start the application phase, because that is a stressful time. Um, <laughs> you know, just email and just be like, hi, like, can I talk to you? If you are in the area, you can meet up for coffee. Those are all just like really great things to do. Um, I guess we could talk a little bit more about our own routes that we've taken. So, because people have asked, you know, how did you get into public health? (laughs) And yeah, I mean, do you want to start off with this? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I have a very zigzaggy path. Young Diana, leaving high school, thought she was going to be the next best screenwriter and filmmaker. Uh, so cool. Yeah. <laughs> so I went to school for my bachelor's in digital media, and I was super set on that until I got feedback on one of my assignments, and I got very dramatic in my reaction. And I was like, ah, what do you mean? You don't understand the vision behind my artwork. You can't tell me how to art. <laughs> and I decided in that instant that I would switch and go into biochemical engineering, as one does. Um, So I ended up doing a dual concentration in biochemical engineering and digital media. And then from there, I was like, you know, I think I'm going to go fulfill the desire of my Asian mother to become a doctor. So (laughs) I went to go do a DPT, which is a doctor of physical therapy. And while I was there, I did a lot of work with health advocacy, health rights, patient rights, human rights, access to healthcare, and ended up discovering public health that way. And now here I am working in global health, human rights, and epidemiology. So yeah, that's that. That's awesome. I mean, you have such a diverse background of knowledge. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it is what it is. <laughs> um, so what's your story, Susanna? Yeah, my story. It's um, it's not as zigzaggy, but it's not as linear either. So I started off thinking I would go to medical school. Um, and then junior year of college, I was like, you know what? 
I don't think I'll be happy in a clinical setting. The one to one to one interaction with patients, like that's just not my my jam. So actually, the night of my last OCHEM final at 5 a.m., I closed my book and I was like, I'm not taking this exam and I'm going to withdraw from the course. <laughs> Damn! Holy shit, that's yeah. bold. Um, it was actually so that decision seems really spontaneous, but I had been considering not going to medical school for a few months at that point. Um, so I yeah I dropped out of that class and then I called my parents the next day and I was like guess what I'm not going to medical school anymore <laughs> and I at that time I had also been taking classes in international studies and I was really interested in the zoomed out version of how nations work and how we interact and how health fits into that picture so once I dropped that whole pre-med route I declared my major for international studies and I, spe I specialized in international health and development. So that was pretty cool. And then I was like, oh, all of a sudden, I don't know what I'm gonna do after graduation because I am not going to medical school anymore. <laughs> so I applied for Peace Corps and then I was set to actually go to Tanzania. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, the following February after graduating from undergrad. But then I was like, you know what, maybe I, I should try grad school for development, international development. So I applied. Um, I found out that I got into grad school a week after my graduation. <laughs> and then um, I decided to go to grad school instead. So I actually didn't go to the Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. And then I thought my master's in international development was going to be my finishing degree. Because um, I was determined to go into the field and do field work. And then uh, after the first year, I was like, you know what? I really love health. I still haven't left that behind and I was learning more about this field of public health and global health and I was like, you know what, I'm going to shoot for a PhD in global health. Um, and that decision also came because mm -hmm. like we've been talking about, about you know, you going out and reaching out to professors and just talking to people. I did that a lot. I talked to different professors, I talked to a lot of different people who knew me and I asked questions like, you know, what do you think are my greatest skill mm -hmm. sets? Um, and what have you seen as my professor that I could really work on and that I could really, what kind of environment do you think I would really flourish in? And so based upon those answers, um, a lot of what I got was people were saying, you know, I think you would be a really great teacher. Um, and I could see that you really enjoy doing mm -hmm. that and that you enjoy researching and that you enjoy learning. So I think academia makes sense for you. Um, so then, yeah, that like confirmed my decision. So then I went to a PhD for public health with a global health focus. So that's where I'm at now. So not as zigzaggy as you, like I didn't go all the way to biochemical engineering, but um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you did quite literally the opposite. You were like, oh no, organic chemistry, forget this. I gotta leave, <laughs> which I mean, I Yeah, um, it was, that was a big decision in my life actually, deciding not to go to medical school because for me, growing up, um, I've had a lot of really big dreams. Like, you know, I wanted to be president of the United States. <laughs> I wanted to. My very first dream job was to be a police officer. Um, yeah, but like, it, like throughout middle school and high school, I think the main thing that I really wanted to be was a physician. Um, but it was, I think, through just learning more about who I am and how I thrive, um, the medical environment. I think just wasn't for me.
Yeah, I also think that it's interesting that you knew that you wanted to do public health that whole time and what you were interested in. And I remember, like for me personally, that it felt very weird for me to finally come around and get to this. But I remember specifically having a conversation with one of my aunts that I was switching to do public health. And she was like, wow, this makes so much more sense than physical therapy for you. And I just thought, why couldn't you have told me this so much earlier, saved me so much time and money? <laughs> you could have saved It's just me interesting so much money. how people perceive themselves <laughs> and how other people perceive us. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's really just a lot of learning more about what we don't like until we really find what we do love. And then it's like, yes, this, this is what I need more of yeah. in my life. I think definitely when there's something that feels right and makes sense, you know. Um, of course, imposter syndrome kicks in and you're like, I don't belong here. But <laughs> but I think I, that's a very different feeling from actually knowing like this is something that I truly enjoy. So those are the routes we've taken. And if you have any questions regarding those, we're more than happy to answer them. Um, but I will say for myself, if you have questions about medical school, I cannot answer any of those because I did not go. Um, <laughs> I can tell you about why I quit and whether you are considering to quit, <laughs> we can talk about that. Um, so I cannot give advice on that. But if you have any questions about international development, international studies, and a PhD in public health, I can answer those questions. I cannot answer questions on MPH in global health because I do not hold an MPH. And that would probably be more of your route, Diana, right? Yep. Definitely. But also, if you're out there and you're looking to drop out of a doctorate, I got you. (laughs) It was a hard decision. But seriously, if you're interested in this field or the MPH or the possibilities of what you can do in the field and the process of applying to schools, I mean, not medical schools, but also, yeah, I can do that because I did that. But please also don't send me your med school applications. (laughs) But if you want to talk about working in the field, I can definitely help with that because I've done plenty of work on the ground. A lot of, I think a lot of what we're saying is not um, special to us. Like we didn't, we didn't just like magically come up with these pieces of advice. <laughs> um, like this is advice that has been given to us as well from so many other people. So I, I'm, our encouragement is if you're reaching out to us, that's great. But also make sure you're reaching out to people, you know, within your vicinity and talking to more people because our perspective isn't the only perspective. Yeah, we can only really talk to our own experiences and help to paint a more realistic picture. The field is not being portrayed quite that well online, I think, which is the whole premise behind this podcast. We want to be able to show the intricacies, the color, the life, and how to get into public health and how to really understand the field of global health. Please take advantage of our guests who come on here and share their information. Um, Because like Diana just said, we... The reason we have this podcast is so that we can show so many different kinds of people that work in this field or that we work with in this field. And if that's along the lines of what you're really interested in, like, heck yeah, you should definitely reach out and ask them questions because like, I'm not, I'm in, I'm in no way an expertise on sex education or, you know, anthropology or things like that. But I... I learned so much from the guests that we have on our podcast. Yeah, and they're all super wonderful people. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, That's all I have to say. I don't know if you wanted to add any other last pieces of advice, nuggets of wisdom. Ah, 
I feel so much pressure to say something inspiring. Uh, <laughs> stay hydrated, drink some water. Stay hydrated. <laughs> Make sure you wash your hands <laughs> with soap. Or ash. Yeah. You can actually wash your hands with ash because it's a disinfectant as well. A lot of people in resource poor countries use ash instead of oh. soap because soap is not readily available. So that's a fun fact. There you go. And that's the episode. Please subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Your support helps us grow. Also, leave us some reviews. We'll frame them and put them on our walls. Yeah, and give us that good good. You can also support us by becoming a member of our Patreon page. Susanna and I spend a lot of time making sure our information is correct, but there are only two of us. So if you catch something, please let us know. Feel free to reach out to either of us by emailing globalcaveat at gmail.com or to either of us on Instagram at Catalyst and at Sujani. I will say if it's your first time reaching out, please introduce yourself so that we can know who you are and what your name is. And a special thanks to all the people that have to listen to us brainstorm and to Cordell Glass for producing our music.